Do you remember the sharper image? Not the bankrupt one, not even the one just before that that sold all sorts of junk on airplanes. I'm talking about the original sharper image, the sharper image of the 1980s, the sharper image that was the wire cutter plus wired plus the whole earth catalog put together, the sharper image that gave us a whole wondrous array of really useful gadgets. Do you remember them? Well, one day, they called me on the phone. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about co-op advertising. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. I remember like it was yesterday, but it was almost 40 years ago. It's hard to believe. I had just spent a year of my life launching a series of adventure games, computer games, based on science fiction novels from people like Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury, my heroes. I had been a marketer, trained anyway, as much as a 23-year-old can be trained, but I had really been a project manager to get this thing out the door. It was thousands and thousands of lines of code. It was groundbreaking technology. And we were chasing a nascent, brand-new marketplace. Well, we shipped everything. And the programmers, they went on to the next thing. But here I was, trying to figure out how was I going to sell more of this extraordinary series of products we had made. And then the phone rang. It was the sharper image on the phone. I can't remember if I got one of those pink while you were out slips or not. I probably did, so I called them back. And I said, what's up? Because I knew I didn't know the money or anything. And the woman from the sharper image said, we see what you've built with these Trillium software games. For those listening today, we changed the name to Telerium. That's a whole other story. We see what you've built with these Trillium adventure games. We'd like to feature them in a two-page spread in the sharper image. Well, I was thrilled. This was it. My prayers were answered. We had been picked. We had been selected. The sharper image arbiter of all things important in technology was going to give us a two-page spread in their catalog that was going to reach a million people, all the right sort of people, and we were going to sell a lot of stuff. And I said, without revealing any of my delight, interesting, how does it work? And then she broke my heart. She said, well, you pay us $50,000 a page, and then we run the ad. And I realized it was a sales call. And then I realized that the Sharper Image catalog wasn't what I thought it was. It wasn't what it used to be. What it was, was an advertising vehicle that they made money before they even shipped the catalog to people, that they made money from what's called co-op advertising. And I'm here because a co-op ad ended up in my mailbox this week. It really surprised me. 
and I thought it would be worth spending a minute to talk about co-op advertising because it really does change our culture, and it does more than we think it does. For 50 or more years, this Sears catalog was the most important merchant in America. Millions and millions of people got this catalog. It was hundreds of pages long. And most of what was listed in the Sears catalog was made by Sears. You could even buy a house that was made by Sears. And by made by, I mean, they had lumber mills. I mean, they were actually doing the work. They weren't just a merchant. They had vertically integrated all the way back into where are we going to plant some trees? And the thing is, when you're selling your own stuff, you make a slightly different decision as a merchant. Because if you've invested a lot, if people's careers are on the line, if you've got warehouses filled with sunk costs, it's likely you're going to promote your thing more. You're not actually serving the customer. You begin to serve the organization. Some merchants are completely agnostic about what they sell. They are representatives of the consumer. And a lot of times, online merchants, including Amazon, will tell us that all they do is sell people what they want. Somewhere in between were the merchants who had a point of view but could change their minds because they didn't own anything. So Walmart doesn't make pickles. Walmart may have a house brand, but the house brand is simply a license deal with someone else. But what happens if you're a merchant at Walmart is you've got to create a planogram, your map of the store, and if you're not generating the sales per square foot that somebody else is generating in a similar store, you could lose your job. The job of a merchant, super important in the evolution of Western culture, is to help shoppers decide what they want. And so merchants, Wanamakers, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, established a point of view by leading consumers in a given direction and finding vendors, people who wanted to sell to them, that matched the vision. But then, about, I don't know, 70 years ago, merchants realized that vendors, industrialists, were willing to pay them money to get more than their fair share of promotion. So I don't know if you can remember those full-page ads that Barnes & Noble used to run, listing all these books that were available at their local superstore. Well, if you look at one of those ads, you'll see it's about six books across and 12 books down. That's 72 books. And they would go to the book publishers and say, you want to be in our ad? We'll list you in our ad for two or $3,000. Multiply $3,000 times 72, you come up with a number that's a lot more than they were paying the newspaper. And all of a sudden, what happens if you're this kind of merchant is you can get hooked on co-op advertising because you're no longer featuring books that you as the merchant think your customers will be delighted to read. You're featuring stuff you think they'll tolerate reading that you got paid to insert. So back to the sharper image example. I'm pretty sure that our software was good enough that this person who was calling knew that Sharper Image's reputation wouldn't be instantly ruined and her job wouldn't be lost if I had said yes to running that $100,000 ad in their catalog. We somehow qualified to be offered the pitch. But I'm also sure that if they could have picked from every single piece of software ever made, they might not have picked ours. 
What they were looking to do is lay off their risk to get paid on both sides, paid by the customer and paid by the industrialist, the vendor that they were listing. And this conflict of interest, and it really is a conflict of interest, causes eventually just about every merchant to fail. It causes them to fail because somebody else comes along that only cares about the consumer. Someone else comes along who realizes that if they can coordinate and understand consumer interests, they will do better. Can't be on both teams at the same time. Okay, so I promised to talk about Amazon. For the longest time, Amazon wouldn't talk to the people who wanted more than their fair share of being listed on the site. Every book on Amazon looks exactly the same, whether you self-publish it or whether you're the biggest book publisher in the United States, Penguin Random House, or as I think of them, Random Penguin. The Random Penguin wasn't able to bring a big enough wheelbarrow full of money to change the search results or anything else about how the consumer experienced Amazon. And then it began to change. Back when I was helping them think about how the Kindle would work, one of the things that was talked about was whether there would be something on the home screen when your Kindle was asleep. And it was decided to put ads for other books. And my pitch was to make sure that those ads were ads for books that totally matched the background of the person who was using the Kindle. Amazon ended up selling them to the highest bidder. Now, as much as a third of all of Amazon's revenue comes not from people paying them to buy the stuff they make, but from companies paying them to be advertised, promoted, or otherwise present on the website. So what showed up in the mail? It says, Ready, Set, Play. And it's a magazine. And the magazine's 100 pages long. And I think I can tell you without fear of exposing my taste, it's not very well done. It wasn't done by a world-class graphic designer. It's not laid out very well. And the products that are inside of it, and there's more than 400 of them, aren't laid out in a way that feels organic or compelling or that a kid who's sitting there trying to decide what they want for the holidays is likely to be seduced by. No, what this catalog is laid out to do is make it easy to sell all 400 of those slots. So if you've got 400 slots and you're someone at the scale of Amazon, you can bet you are charging these companies a fortune to be in this catalog. And suddenly, Amazon's incentives are skewed. They're not here to serve the reader. They're here to do just enough to make sure that the advertiser will buy it again next time. And this, this along with 400 other little steps that they're taking, leads me to believe that they are jumping some sort of shark because they never wanted to be merchants. They never wanted to develop a point of view. They never wanted to say, read this book instead of that book because someone here read the book and believes in it and is willing to bet Amazon's reputation on it. They skipped the whole merchant step. There were people at Bloomingdale's or Macy's and yes, Barnes & Noble who had a point of view. The business book buyer at Barnes & Noble, who I used to know, had read all of the books on the shelves had a point of view about the difference between a good one and a bad one. Nobody 
had that job at Amazon for the longest, longest time. And now, having skipped the merchant state, they are saying, we will sell to the highest qualified bidder more space, higher search results, a place to show up that's labeled in little tiny type, sponsored. And the reason this matters is because most of the people listening to this are consumers, not merchants. And if you're a consumer, a lot of what you buy, you're buying because we live in community. You're buying because other people have one too. You're buying because you're looking for a certain kind of cultural experience. And what you were buying used to be influenced by nothing but that. There was no merchant and there was no vendor paying them under the table. And now it is changing, not just at Amazon, but at lots of places. It is changing because industrialists demand it. Industrialists demand the reliability that comes from them being able to buy more than their fair share with money they made the last time around. But what it leads to is a coarsening and a cheapening of what we decide is good. It changes the trajectory of good taste because good taste ends up belonging not to what the community decides is something that the community is going to like just before the rest of the community realizes it. It evolves to who paid the most in the right place at the right time. That's my rant. This wasn't paid for by anybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Four questions this week, all about time. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Steve in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Your recent podcast about time slipping and what we do with the convenience that our modern world provides to us just... I listened to it four times and every time I noticed something new and um, I, I feel very lucky to have not had much financial trouble in the pandemic. And so I had in that surplus of time. I started playing in a band again. I started writing again. Um, I started coaching young folks early in their careers on how to not make some of the mistakes that I've made pro bono just because I love doing it. I love seeing them be successful. Um, so I've, I'd like to think that I've probably not made the most of them, but did a good, good, good college try at making the most of it. And I wonder uh, how to help the people that we care about see this opportunity and see this time and and look at how they're spending it and what is what is the outcome. I'd just love to hear you expand on that. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for getting us started, Steve. This is really profound. And one of the things that we have done for the last 50 years, two of the things we've done actually, is created a world built around convenience and a world that is allergic to boredom. That people have figured out that they can make money, that they can get traction by offering people those two things. This is more convenient, we say. And so other people give up their privacy, their money, their time. 
And we have created a culture particularly for kids, but then all the way into adulthood, where boredom is seen as a bad thing. But boredom is simply a symptom that we might be aware of time, that we can be aware of time ticking by when we are truly excited and on the edge of our seat, but we are fully aware of time clicking by when we are bored. And so one of the things that I could encourage you to do is to find activities that involve human beings sitting with each other, simply breathing, simply being. And as an organization, it may make sense for you to find people on your team and volunteer. Volunteer at hospice. Volunteer with the homeless. Volunteer with people who have a different interaction with time than you and your team are used to. Because time might be the same for everyone. It doesn't matter whether your watch is working or not. Time marches on. But time is experienced differently by everyone. If you've ever been up in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. with, I don't know, a foot that itches, time seems to go endlessly slowly. But when you're in one of those rare moments of flow with a dear friend, time just whistles right by. And being aware of time, not hiding from it, that's a great place to begin. Hey, Seth. This is Ryan from Philadelphia. I have a question about a linchpin's exit strategy from a company. I've spent the last four years dedicating myself to a great company, becoming a linchpin and almost indispensable. I always thought that I'd leave the company years down the road after it had become quote-unquote successful. Now, my heart is pulling me in a different direction towards an opportunity I can't ignore. The decision has already been made. What I hope for is a slow untangling process where much of what I've developed stays in place as people fill in the duties where needed. What I fear is that it will become a gaping hole once I leave. Any advice on Lynchpin's exit strategy would be much appreciated. Thanks again for all you do. I love your books and look forward to this podcast every week. Thank you, Ryan. It sounds like you have made a big impact on this organization. And one of the challenges of time when it comes to our career is this. If you're going to start something, you're going to end something. The days that you took a job when you were 20 and stayed there until you were 65 are long gone. And so part of what it means to open a door is to acknowledge that one day we will close the door. Industrialists, people who are trying to build systems that don't depend on amazing individuals putting in extra effort, don't like the idea of a linchpin. They would rather everyone be instantly replaceable. If your local Starbucks loses a barista, within a week, just about everyone in the institution has recovered. They built it that way on purpose. And you are generous and aware enough to say, wait, there's going to be a disconnect when I leave here. But I think it's also essential to understand that the organization was there before you got there and it's going to be there after you leave. And the best that you can do is to create that manual, that playbook, that training that lets other people take over. And then you have to say goodbye because time marches on. Hey, Seth. This is Hunter from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, my question is around bringing change. Uh, you speak on your podcast a lot about changing the culture, bringing change um, in many contexts. 
But in this one, I'm asking more about when you're trying to bring change to a team uh, or the workplace, um, with every change, there's going to be some trade-offs. The chances that you can make a change that has no downsides at all is pretty rare. And there's always going to be edge cases uh, where it doesn't work um, or the new method is not ideal. Uh, so I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about how do you implement change and get people to buy in and enroll in the change that you want to see, um, even when there are some downsides to it. Thank you for this, Hunter. One of the things that people mistake about leadership is this. Everyone has to like it. Everyone has to like change. It has to be unanimous that whatever we're going to do is going to make things better. And in those rare instances where it's true, right? It's suddenly really, really cold out and you want to shut the window. Well, just about everyone's going to come out ahead from that one. No one's going to push back. But most of the time, if we're doing something that might not work, if we're doing something that's important, some people are in favor of the status quo. Back when I was running Yoyodyne, one of the first internet companies, I had 50 people in one giant room. And one of the things I instituted was that every 90 days, everybody had to move where they sat. Now, I said they did it so that no one would have to sit next to me for too long. But the real reason I did it is simple. At work, moving where you sit, moving who is around you is somewhat traumatic. And if people got used to the idea that we were a place of change, well, then the other changes we were implementing to our business model, to our approach, to our staffing didn't seem as dramatic. So one of the things we need to do when we live in crazy changing times is to highlight the fact that change isn't fatal, to highlight the fact that change is inevitable, and therefore not to ask the question, should we change something, but instead to ask the question A or B. Because with A or B, the status quo is not one of the options. There will be a post on my blog tomorrow. I already decided that. I decided it a really long time ago. So now my only decision is which one should it be? And creating a culture where that's the mindset, where the status quo is not an option, that might be work worth doing. Hi, Seth. This is Kathleen from Tucson, Arizona. And if I may, I would like to ask you a personal question. I notice how thoughtful and insightful all of your answers are to the questions that people ask you. And I'm wondering how much time you put into thinking about those answers before you respond. Does it take a fair amount of time to think them through? Or have you thought about these issues for so long that it's pretty quick and easy for you to come up with responses? Thank you so much. And I love to listen to your show every week. Thank you for this, Kathleen. And I appreciate the fact that my answers seem to resonate with you. The thing is that I think what people are asking me for is not a year's worth of research and a certain guaranteed correct answer. I think most of the time when people are engaging with one another, at least when we're talking to someone who isn't a car mechanic or an oncologist, I think what we're asking for is, our truth in that moment, based on what we see, based on our understanding. And I am trying to answer these questions as if you were asking them to me as we were walking down the street. I don't edit them very much. I'm simply here trying to imagine what the person who's asking me a question is actually 
seeking. And if I can shed some light, I do. Thanks to everyone for listening. And again, if you've got a question, visit akimbo.link and share it with us. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when you're gonna show up? When you're gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.